Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is Tuesday, the 31st of May, 2022. And I want to just pause this morning on the two words, good and morning. Um, The only thing that makes morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the only possibility of a good morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, is Jesus. There is no good kind of morning unless we know Christ, unless we know the hope of the gospel. And so as many in the United States today and around the world um, grieve with those who grieve in Uvalde, Texas, on this one week anniversary of the event that not only changed the lives of 19 elementary age students and two teachers, and not only their families, but the gunman and his family, and not only all of those families, but all of our families as well. As we walk in this grief together, I want you to ask yourself, do I know what it means to mourn well? Do I know that grief can be good? Is there good mourning? There only, the only way there's good mourning is if there's eternal hope. And so I'm mindful of that this morning as we grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. I only bring you one uh, one quick headline here. Parenting, I mean, you know that you know this already. You know this intuitively. You know it experientially. Parenting is hard. Um, but parenting during the pandemic um, got even harder. 63 million parents in the United States have kids younger than 18 at home, just as a point of reference here. 63 million parents in the United States have kids at home younger than 18. Those parents work, they volunteer, they are raising the next generation, and they have a level of stress that makes all of it um, harder than it has been, at least since we have been tracking the whelm or overwhelm of parents. And so the rising cost of gas and groceries the rising stress related to whether or not your children are safe in places that have been considered safe in the past, the questions children are asking, COVID, clashes over education and teaching, on and on and on. Um, Now, the good news is parents have an unprecedented opportunity to be with their children um, in the culture today. Um, But what do we do when we're with our children? And so let me remind you of all the resources that we have discussed in the past, maybe interviews or conversations that we've had with Kara Powell um, uh, about withing, like, right, being with our children. What does it look like to walk alongside them? What does it look like to shepherd their hearts? What does it look like to disciple our children, not just raise them? So how do we help our kids grow up in every way into Christ who is the head? That is a pressing conversation in parenting today. We're going to talk later 
this morning with Matt Markins from Awana, and we're going to talk about discipleship and discipleship uh, of the next generation. That's coming up a little later in this morning's program. Um, but first, uh, we're going to talk with Mark Caleb Smith, as we often do on um, on Tuesday mornings, and we're going to talk about the headlines of the day. In particular, we're going to bring a focus back onto Uvalde, Texas. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing today? Well, I, I am well. I had um, a nice uh, three-day weekend, spent some time yesterday at the Veterans um, Cemetery near where we live, just walking among the um, red, white, and blue you know, flags that um, were on every grave yesterday on Memorial Day, thanking God for the freedoms we enjoy, recognizing that not everybody around the world enjoys those freedoms and recognizing the um, sacrifice people made um, that I might be able to do today what I do. So um, that was, I also spent a wonderful uh, three days with three women at Camp Carmen, (laughs) which we just call it that because I just get to be in charge of everything. So um, anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm well, how about you? Uh, good. Yeah, good. I mean, it's, uh, it's good to spend time with family. Uh, we're a little bit divided at the moment. My wife is in one place visiting her parents for a few days. I'm here, but, uh, we have a large enough family where we can divide up kids and, uh, it's good, good time to spend with kids for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's uh, bring some families into focus this morning. Texas officials, uh, for those of you who are listening and maybe, um, tuned out of the news over the weekend, Texas officials, are uh, admitting that um, the police response to the shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas last week um, was in error at several points. They um, they have admitted in a Friday press briefing that the police made a mistake waiting for backup and equipment before attempting to um, intervene with a gunman who was inside the school um, essentially unimpeded for more than an hour, 78 minutes uh, looks like the like looks like the TikTok um, in terms of what's going on. So Stephen McCrawls, the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, he says it was not the right decision. It was the wrong decision. Period. And there's no excuse. The U.S. Justice Department is um, initiating a review of law enforcement response uh, based on the request of the Uvalde mayor. When we talk about, Mark, when we talk about the response of the police, it's one thing. When we talk about political responses, it's another thing. When we talk about Christians responding, maybe it's a whole other question. Can you just talk a little bit with us about responses to um, mass shootings in general and then this one specifically in Uvalde? Well, I think the the biggest danger we're running into right now is sort of having no response. Um mm. You know, I think, unfortunately, we're getting so used to this. I mean, I remember when Columbine happened and how Columbine sort of reverberated because it was just shocking. Um, and I think you could say the same thing about Sandy Hook when Sandy Hook happened, maybe Parkland to some extent. But the fact that I can go through a list of names and we all know what they are. But I think there's a I think there's a I think there's a declining effect of these things on us. Um, 
you know, I think there's going to be a few days of response like we've seen so far, a few days of anger and outrage. Uh, but does it go farther than that? You know, does it maintain itself into a serious conversation? Um, so I, I think all those things are worth talking about, how the police responded, how we as believers respond, how our parties are responding. What are the constitutional issues? There's no end to what we can discuss. But I'm just most fearful that we're tired of responding to it. Um, you know, social media gives us a vent, which we can go to and vent for a while. And you see a lot of that in places like Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, but then it it just kind of feels contained to that for me. I don't know if it spills out beyond that a whole lot right now. So what functionally happens in a representative democracy? What functionally happens when the people get tired of something happening? Like, uh, you know, it, will the American right. carnage go on forever is a way I heard this right question asked um, on Friday, and something like 80 percent of respondents said it's not going to stop. This is going to continue. If 80 percent of people think something really horrible is going on and is going to continue unabated, then are we not at the point where we've either just thrown up our hands, which seems not the right response for a representative democracy, or we have to find some new answers to some very old questions? Well, it's a great question, and you have some of this comes down to leadership. Um, and in a representative democracy, leadership takes on different forms. Sometimes it's in direct response to what the people want. So the people have clearly stated something. Uh, our elected officials understand if I don't do this, then I'm going to lose my job. Yeah, the the issue is high profile and and pointed, and there's a clear path forward. And so you do see elected officials re- respond to some degree. Because it's just self-interest. They have to respond or they're going to they're gonna, uh, lose the next election. Um, I don't think you see that here in quite the same way. I mean, I think now our political parties, uh, they know they have to respond. But the response is often, as much as I hate to say this, the response is often performative. It's, well, I have to make sure I say the right things, that I have the right script in mind, that I hit the right talking points that I make the same demands of the other side, whatever those demands are, um, and then I feel okay about it. I think I've responded well enough to satisfy my constituents so that I can move forward and do other things if I really need to. And so, uh, you know, it just, it doesn't, it feels like when our politicians respond to this, the response isn't policy. It isn't change. It isn't moving forward and compromising and talking with the other party. The response is, I'm going to act like I'm angry, and now I'm going to make sure I get enough media attention so that you know that I'm angry, and then I can check off my box and then just move on. And that's where we as a people have to do better at pushing our elected officials to actually come up with solutions as opposed to simply giving us a way to vent our own frustrations, which is what it feels like they're doing all too much of right now. All right, we're talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. We're talking about around a range of issues and topics, some of them related to gun violence in America, mass shootings, um, political responses. Even when I just say some of those words, you know, uh, what was the response in your personal spirit out there? Um, We're going to we're going to talk about questions raised about putting our faith or our trust in others in a representative democracy. Um, And we're also going to talk about an interesting conversation going on in Los Angeles, where the archdiocese has asked a candidate for the office of sheriff 
to take down a campaign video that was filmed in a church. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a bulky style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith this morning from Cedarville University. Uh, Mark, um, as folks have raised questions uh, about the response of law enforcement following the shooting in Uvalde a week ago today, um, I have been listening and my ears have been hearing the word faith a lot. Um, this, uh, this challenges my faith in the police or I'm asking questions about my faith in humanity. The word faith, when it is used in relationship to civic leadership, maybe as a way of saying that, or when it is used in the context of conversations in the culture. I feel like that gives us an opportunity to talk about where we put our faith uniquely. But maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the faith that people put in institutions and what happens in a culture um, when that faith is challenged, eroded, or evaporated. So I think when, when most of us consider things like the police or the military, um, these are parts of our government that I think for the most part we have the, the joy of not interacting with that often. <laughs> In other words, we have some faith that they will function properly. Um, you know, unless you live in a high crime area or unless you're involved in the military or you serve, you have a family member that serves, those are parts of our government that we sort of can put on the back burner and say, you know what, they're doing their job. I can be comfortable that they're doing their job. And it, and it gives me a sort of a level of security that they're doing their job and that they're out there um, doing their best. You know, because those are the kinds of people, you know, think of firemen, think of police officers, military people. Those are the kinds of the people that answer the call when things go wrong and they face the worst case scenarios and they do it, generally speaking, uh, with, with great bravery and courage. And when that's true, then I think it gives us a sense of security that we have in our, in our own daily lives. When it's shaken, when that kind of faith is shaken, and when you see failure take place, like you seemingly what we see here in Uvalde, uh, you know, you said before, 78 minutes. It's just a shocking number to think 78 minutes between when the gunman entered the school and before the door was breached. We don't know everything yet. But that just seems un intolerably long. And so when your faith is shaken like that, you begin to re reassess things. You begin to reevaluate. You know, uh, is this just a one-time incident? Is this something that happens often that we see failures in law enforcement but that they're just not publicized? You know, do we only know about this because parents showed up and videotape happened and call logs took place so that there's evidence? Well, what about all the situations where there's no evidence? So I'm not saying that we would be justified now in, in challenging everything we ever believed about the police. That's not true, and it's not fair. Um, but I think it does give you sort of a pause, and you have to start to think about how that part of our government functions. But I think your I think your your comment's a good one. Uh, we as believers, we have to understand that our security doesn't rest in how well the police officers do their job. Our security doesn't rest in how effective our military is. Our security rests somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part of the conversation that we can get into. Um, but of course, you know, if my faith is in God and the steadfastness of God and his loyalty and his integrity and his, you know, that he's going to keep all of his promises to me, that means I have to demonstrate that to the world. My attitude mm -hmm. should reflect that confidence, and that steadfastness. 
And so, you know, when I walk into this kind of a situation, my demeanor should reflect that to the point where people should look at me and go, you know what? Something's weird about that guy. He's not as shaken as the rest of us are. I wonder why. But if we don't have that demeanor, if we don't wear that in the world, uh, then I think we're missing an opportunity to have some of these conversations that you're talking about. Yeah, what came to mind as you were saying that is, you know, some trust in chariots and some in horses. I mean, our language for that today would be some trust in the police and or the military. But we trust in the Lord, our God. Um, We're brought to our knees. We fall. And yet we rise up and stand firm. Lord God, save us. Um, You know, answer us when we call. Psalm 20 is the referent there for those of you who are listening or like, yeah, I that rings a bell in my mind. I don't know how to find that. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Um, where we put our trust, where we find our security, not only eternally, but right here and right now, do we walk by faith and not by sight? You know, are we really trusting in the reality of the God who is regardless or in the midst of all circumstances. Like, right, do I know the secret of being content in the midst of all circumstances, even the most horrific of circumstances? Like, do I, if I don't trust God in the midst of this, then do I really right. trust God? Like, I think that's, you know, do I trust and God to ra- be God? And that raises the question, you know, we always hear about thoughts and prayers, and that uses a criticism of Christians. when We say, well, our, th- our thoughts and prayers are with the people in Uvalde, but that's the best of thoughts and prayers. We're praying from that perspective, that, that sense of contentment and that sense of trust that God is working through even this horrendous situation. But that thoughts and prayers, of course, can then be an excuse for some of us to just do nothing else. And that's really the disconnect. You know, that's where we have this discussion and this, this argument uh, as a society and as believers. Uh, yes, I should rest in what God and the confidence that I have in God and who he is. But does that mean I should do nothing to try to address the problem that's sitting in front of me? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And so then how do we take that confidence that we have and in, in the eternal question, who am I? Why am I here? Uh, what's my destiny? Well, all those questions are answered. Well, now, how can I turn my sight to the world around me? And how can I take my sense of justice? And how can I take what God has given me and look for solutions and look for ways to curb this just plague of mass shootings that we see uh, in our country? And I think that's where we as believers have to have real conversations about it. How can we contribute to solving this problem? If there is a solution, how can we contribute to to making it better as opposed to just simply resting in our theological truths? All right. So um, brief us in on what's happening in in L.A. Uh, The Catholic Archdiocese has asked a candidate for sheriff to take down a particular campaign video. This is a, an yeah. interesting intersection of faith and politics. Yeah, Alex Villanueva, uh, L.A. County Sheriff, running for re-election, filmed a campaign video in his church, the Catholic church, where he and his wife are longtime members. Um, and the video shows him uh, praying and kneeling and asking for strength and compassion to do his job well. Um, as you might imagine, got a a fair bit of attention because of the setting of the video. Uh, The archdiocese asked him and the church, you know, to stop this and to prevent it from being spread. The church was primarily worried about this being seen as an endorsement of the church. Um, You know, there are 4 million Catholics in the Los Angeles area, has over 300 parishes. Um, And so the, the Roman Catholic Church is obviously a significant institution in that area. And they didn't want to appear to be Uh, endorsing a candidate for a sheriff's race. And so 
they said, you know, can you can we please pull back this advertisement because we weren't notified of this and we would not have approved it. Um, but of course, you can understand from the sheriff's perspective, boy, that's good politics, right? If you can show that you're a person of faith and if you can show the building where you where you worship, then that that is a good message to send to voters. Uh, the Catholic Church said no thanks. That's a little bit too far. It's interesting how many conversations we're having about um, Roman Catholics in the culture today. It's notable to me that um, most of the victims in Uvalde, their services are going to be held at uh, the, yep. the Sacred Heart Catholic Church. Um, those uh, events have begun. Um, we're certainly praying with and for those individuals. This is a person who identifies very publicly as a Catholic. We've had conversations about the the, the Catholic faith, faith of some of our Supreme Court justices. It's just an interesting, um, I, I don't, you know, uh, it's a, it's interesting. We, we might need to be examining what's going on um, in Roman Catholicism, particularly when we're talking about uh, people who um, come from a Latino or Hispanic heritage, because many of these names, as we're hearing them, right. and many of these faces as we're seeing them, um, you know, it bears witness to the the change in the American demographic, and so that's a it's a, it may be an interesting follow up for us to uh, to talk about it at another time. Yeah, no question, uh, that issue isn't going away. That's for sure, and that's part of what makes that block of voters and that block of people, um, I think, available for both political parties to some extent, but it also gives them a slightly different twist than what we're used to seeing in other groups. Yeah, and tends to be very pro-life. So, hey, Mark, thank you as always so much. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. You can find him at Cedarville University. He's also on Twitter. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We're going to take a visit here with Max Lucado and Upwards. We'll be right back. So I was um, intrigued over the weekend um, and yesterday in particular on my drive back home, um, catching up on some things with the response of the people of Poland. Uh, just just consider for a moment. I know that um, sometimes, you know, our attention drifts, right? We we can't stay focused on uh, on any one story for as long as the focus really should remain there. Uh, but we are like at day 100 of the war of Russia's invasion of its neighbor, Ukraine. And so we're also 100 days into the conversation about millions of people, uh, some six or seven million internally displaced with inside Ukraine, but another five or six million that actually left the nation of Ukraine and poured over neighboring borders into a number of countries and then further across those countries into um into into Western Europe, but the nation that has responded and shown hospitality to the majority of the people fleeing Ukraine has been Poland. And the response of the people of Poland to the arrival of millions of people fleeing war in Ukraine has been nothing short of inspiring and worthy of commentary. Uh, they drove their private cars to an international border and picked up the elderly women and children, and then they drove them to their private homes, and they started caring for them. And they've been doing so ever since. Uh, so many, uh, millions, in fact, so many that only something shy of a, of a million people um, who crossed over the border have actually applied for benefits in Poland. And when I say apply for benefits, 
the nation of Poland moved so quickly to adapt to the arrival of its neighbors that even those who arrived without documentation uh, in many cases um, and without requirements related to COVID vaccination, they were granted, these Ukrainians, when they arrived, they were granted the equivalence of Polish citizenship upon arrival. The only thing they cannot do is vote. Now, that is an incredible witness and testimony. Um, in, in part, it is an expression of the Poles' own experience historically with, um, with Russia and a series of other imperial powers in the neighborhood. But it's also a testimony in a day and time when we tend to look at the other with great suspicion. Uh, you know, the alien crossing our border is often not met with us driving there and picking them up in our private cars and bringing them to our private homes and caring for them until they get their kids in school and they get a job and they get on their own feet. So just think about that for a moment as we consider, let's say, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, do we regard people according to the flesh or do we regard people according to the spirit? You know, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but Paul says we regard him this way no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The things that make us different from one another have passed away, and we have become one. We have become new. We have become brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. There's a kingdom mentality and an understanding of the image of Christ in every human being that really does um, make the things that make us different from one another irrelevant in terms of the advance of the gospel in our generation. So one of the people who articulates that best and understands it is Matthew Sorens. We talk with Matthew from time to time from World Relief and the Evangelical Immigration Table. Um, but he comes to us today with a brand new book. It just dropped today. It's called Inalienable. And we're going to talk about how marginalized kingdom voices can help us in the American church. Matthew Sorens up next. Matthew Sorens is back. He is one of three authors of a brand new book that drops today, Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. Matthew, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Always great to be with you, Carmen. So um, first of all, why don't you introduce introduce us to your co-authors and to the conversation or observations um, that led to this book? Sure. So my co-authors are good friends of mine. Eric Costanzo is a pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor down in Oklahoma um, of a church that I've worked with through my work with World Relief, um, where I'm in charge of church mobilization and, and advocacy. And then Daniel Yang is actually both a neighbor of mine. We live in the same city uh, in Aurora, Illinois, and he's a missiologist over at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. And he's also the son of refugees. So he brings that perspective into this conversation as well. And really, I would say the book, Inalienable, um, you know, we, it started as a conversation between the three of us a few years back, really just, you know, sort of lamenting. It feels like the American church has lost its way in some ways. And I, I think we probably would frame that in different ways from our unique perspectives. For me, part of it was in my work with World Relief, we've been resettling refugees with local churches for decades. And we were in this season when, you know, polling was showing that three out of four white evangelical Christians actually thought we should have a moratorium on refugee resettlement. And I was just really confused by that. It didn't seem consistent with the way that I was reading my Bible. 
and that, you know, some, the, the church I grew up in had taught me to read the Bible, where I saw all these passages about God's love for the vulnerable and specifically for vulnerable foreigners. Um, and I think a lot of people probably have the same sense that I felt that somehow for a lot of people who identify as American Christians, we've gone off course and our faith has become about something other than commitment to the authority of God's word. You know, focusing on God's kingdom, focusing on God's mission, and recognizing the image of God in each person. And so we really wrote the book um, to try to help reorient to those inalienable, foundational core truths of what it is to follow Jesus. And one of the, the thoughts behind the book is some of these challenges we have in the, in the American church are not universal. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world who also have problems, and those church that's perfect, but they have different blind spots than what we might have. And how, what could we learn by reaching out to, to Christians from other parts of the world, um, as well as looking to the ancient church and um, really looking for some wisdom from some truths that have borne the test of time? Yeah, you certainly can't read the book of Acts and say to yourself, um, you know, the church is has national boundary constraints or the church is constrained, um, you know, or intended to serve only one kind of people. I mean, if you if you read the book of Acts, it's pretty clear that's not true. Um, and beyond the book of Acts uh, as well. But that's the one that sort of stands out bright light in my mind when you when you talk about this. We're talking with Matthew Sorens. The book is inalienable. It just drops today. Matthew, let's talk about that word inalienable. I think that, you know, when we first hear it, our mind leaps to the Declaration of Independence. That's where we think we hear that word. But that word means more um, and covers more territory than maybe what we think of when we think of what it affirms in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, that's right. And so in some ways, we're kind of playing with the words there. I mean, we, you know, we love that part of the Declaration of Independence, affirming that everyone has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, those inalienable rights. Um, but I think a lot of us kind of brush back by that word and don't know what it means. Um, but actually, I think Eric was the one who brought this, you know, that suggested this as a sort of a theme for the book. He noted that in, in the original language, you know, the Latin word alias means other. So something that is inalienable means there is no other. It is so central, foundational. And in some ways that describes, you know, we're not necessarily looking at the inalienable truths around the founding of the United States, but what are the inalienable truths of the scriptures? Um, and in, fact, in some ways much more important than the foundation of the United States. So to say that there is no other God uh, except the one God, which is, of course, a core biblical truth. And then even more in a sociological sense that there is no other. There's not this category of people who are different from us, who are less uh, made in the image of God, um, because God has, you know, very clearly in the New Testament laid out that there is, you know, th that there is no favoritism with God, that people of every nationality are invited into his kingdom. And um, so that's where we got the, the, the title. We really wanted to in some ways play on that that focus that a lot of Americans have, a lot of American Christians have on the founding of the United States and flip it on its head and say, what are the more, even more foundational truths that ought to be essential to us as followers of Jesus? That really, you know, these are the essential truths um, that we need to get back to if we're going to be faithful to following Jesus in our country, in our day. It's a really positive reset and refocus um, and reclamation of words that have, uh, you know, that maybe have morphed in our uh, in our use over time, the book is inalienable, how marginalized kingdom voices can help save the American church. We're going to talk about the word save. We're going to talk about the American church. That's what we're focusing in on. 
So one of the things that stands out to me is, you know, I, well, I, I feel like what you guys are trying to do is get us refocused and recentered on these inalienable realities, the kingdom of God, the image of God, the, uh, the image of God and the people of God or as the people of God, uh, get us refocused and recentered on the mission of God, holding out the word of God uh, to a world dying to know God. Like it feels like there are this uh, there is this set of things that if we were to recenter and refocus on, it, it changes what's um it changes what's in the viewfinder, uh, you know, of my of what I'm looking at and how I'm looking at it. And it also changes my like peripheral vision. Like, right. If mm-hmm. I'm if I'm recentered or refocused um, because I've got the word of God back in its rightful place in my life and I'm actually reading what it says in the spirit of the living God. Like, right. If I'm if I'm doing that, it does change my understanding of who the image bearers are who we are as kingdom people together, what the kingdom of God advancing really is based on what Jesus has told us. Like, right, all of those things are happening, but that is really disruptive, Matthew. That is, yeah. That's going to be very disruptive. So talk about that because this is, this is going to be disruptive. Refocus, recentering, I mean, actually moving the center of something, that is a terribly disruptive uh, challenge. Yeah, you know, one of the stats that I came across in working on this book that really felt convinced me that we needed to write this, even if it is a little bit disruptive, and I'm imagining it might be a little controversial for some people as well, but um, there was a survey that found that uh, only a minority of self-described evangelical Christians of all ethnicities in the United States said that their identity in their faith was more important to them than their identity in being an American, which you know, as Christians, it's really clear our citizenship is in heaven. We are, you know, foreigners and strangers on earth. We are seeking a better country to, you know, quote the author of Hebrews. We're supposed to be good Americans. We're supposed to be patriotic Americans. But in a clear, absolutely secondary sense compared to our identity in Christ. And yet that seems to have been confused for a lot of Americans. And that's really where, we, you know, I, I felt this needs to be something we refocus on, not on our national identity, though I'm, you know, very grateful to be an American, but to refocus on God's word and his kingdom, his mission, um, and uh, and on his image in, in human beings that he has created in his image. Um, that idea of decentering, um, again, we part of that is a lot of Americans have come to presume or maybe have always thought that the United States is sort of the center of the, of the church. And in a demographic sense, there was a time that that was true. There was more Christians who self-identifying as Christians in the United States than, you know, than in any other region. That uh, is no longer the case. If you, you know, talk to missiologists, that center of, of global Christianity has very distinctly shifted to Africa, to Latin America. Um, more Christians in the world today speak Spanish than speak any other single language. And more than 80 percent of evangelical Christians are, are not white. Um, and that's not a good or a bad thing. We're not saying that's, you know, something, you know, we want more white people to be Christians. We want more non-white people to be Christians, to be following Jesus. But the problem is when we still think of ourselves as Americans, as the center of the universe, and that the that we have, you know, that all theological wisdom comes from the United States and emanates out, uh, that all resources come from here and emanate out. And we see the rest of the world as a mission field and forget that they may have a mission for that God may have a mission for us drawing, working through people from other parts and brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world to enrich the American church as well. So if you're listening uh, to Matthew and uh, and Carmen right now and you're asking that, let me encourage you to ask yourself this. When you think of new churches 
um, in your community, in your city, when you think of people who are publicly expressing faith in Jesus um, in your community, in your city, in your state and across the nation, what do those people look like and what do they sound like? And just pause there, hit the pause button and recognize our brothers and sisters in Christ, increasingly those who are vocal and public uh, about their faith, those who are speaking truth to the issues of the day, um, are people of color, increasingly uh, women, and many of them um, speaking with at least an accent that uh, you know doesn't come from middle rural America. So just consider that as we um, as we continue our conversation here with Matthew Sorens. The brand new book is Inalienable. And we're talking about how listening to marginalized voices, when we talk about marginalized voices, we're talking about women, we're talking about people of color, um, we're talking about people from other parts of the kingdom around the world, um, how marginalized kingdom voices can help us, can help us in terms of the future of the American church. We're going to continue our conversation with Matthew in just a moment. This is amazing continuing our conversation with Matthew Sorens from World Relief. Um, we're talking about a brand new book he has co-authored um, with Eric Costanzo. Am I pronouncing his last name correctly? Yeah, pretty close. And Daniel Yang. Um, the book is Inalienable. Matthew, you're helping us um, recognize not only the need in the American church, which I think we, I, I do think we recognize. I do think we recognize something is broken. Um, but what you guys are offering is like a hope-filled future. So talk with us about the voices that you're seeking to help us hear, um, and then how, um, like, how does that happen? How do we refocus on the inalienable attributes of the kingdom of God, the image of God, the word of God, the mission of God? Yeah, you know, one of my favorite parts about writing this book, and and Eric and Daniel did similar things was, and this was in the pandemic, so I was sitting around my bedroom for a, a lot of this time. Uh, I just set up, you know, Skype and Zoom conversations with people whom I've had the interact, opportunity to interact around the world in the course of my work with World Relief. So some colleagues in Africa, um, some church leaders in Latin America, um, and basically just asked them a series of questions. What do you think about when you think about the kingdom of God? You know, how, you know, what do you think about when you hear the American church? What do you see as the American church is a blessing for the global church? And what do you think maybe the American church is, has maybe lost its way? And those interviews were so instructive to me. Um, and also just a lot of common themes that came out across, you know, from Africa and Asia and Latin America and some from Europe as well. And then from some immigrant and African-American church leaders in the U.S. Um, it was just really fascinating kind of seeing some of the themes that emerged. So that was really where, you know, that was our first step with writing this book was not to presume we had the prescription, but I'm glad that it comes across as hopeful. That is absolutely our goal. The first chapter, if you, you know, you might feel like we're a little down on the American church. Our goal is really to establish, here's the problem. Here's why, um, to maybe use a little hyperbole, the American church needs saving. I'm um, not in the, in a salvific sense, um, because Jesus is a savior, but, you know, Jesus has promised that the church would always, you know, it would it would not be overtaken. He didn't say that to the U.S. church necessarily or any particular geography. And so our goal is really to say, how can we learn from sisters and brothers in Christ? And um, and so in terms of the second question of how do we practically do that, um, I, you know, hopefully reading the book is a first start. But one of the 
one of the things we say early on in the book is we hope you will be noting the footnotes of this book and go to some of the books that we're citing and just expand the theological perspectives that are informing your life. The vast majority of Americans, not by intention, but just because of the place where we live, tend to hear from people who share a lot of our perspectives. Um, and that doesn't mean you will agree with everything you read. I think we've come somehow gotten this idea that you can only read things that you 100% agree with. And that's a pretty stifling uh, way to live uh, because we can never be challenged and stretched. And, you know, we cite some authors here who we don't agree with on every issue, but we think that they have some wisdom to bring to a particular issue uh, that we want to lift up. And um, so we hope people will in some ways use even the, you know, the notes to the book as a further reading guide and to expand the voices that are informing their perspectives and also just get back to God's word, um, which might mean turning off some other voices, uh, even, you know, turning off social media, turning off uh, some of your, our news consumption and really focusing. And one of the things we heard from somebody pastors, I think every pastor can identify with this is it's really hard to help disciple people well when they're effectively being discipled by cable news or by things they're reading on social media. And, you know, those are neutral tools. They can be used for good or for ill, but when they are such a large part of the diet of what we're consuming, and frankly, most evangelical Christians, by our own admission, spend very little time in the Word. And that's one of the other challenges. And, and one of the things, frankly, we heard from global Christians is it doesn't seem like American Christians have the same uh, emphasis on the authority of God's Word that they that frankly, in many cases, through missionaries, they taught us to have. Um, mm -hmm. But it is in some ways sort of gone by the wayside, or we think we know what that says, and we've you know focused our time and attention elsewhere. I think for those of us who've been you know praying for revival and been asking God to you know send a, a fresh wind of His Spirit, you know the people who have arrived um, as missionaries essentially to the United States have come from other places around the world, and sometimes. Um, we are not attuned to hear them. Um, sometimes we are not receptive of the gospel um, from them. And I, it occurs to me that that's, that is absolutely necessary. Um, sometimes, Matthew, we want things for other people that they don't necessarily want for themselves. Um, and we think of the gospel and or a particular expression of Christian worship or practices um, as the, it has to be this way, like the, the forms of it. Um, talk with us about the observations you make about uh, the Christian approach to advocacy and or the Great Commission, because those are influenced when we really listen to other people instead of making assumptions about them. Yeah, you know, so those are the, the last, really the last two chapters of the book. One is on advocacy, uh, but in a way that, you know, focus on discipleship, freed from partisanship. Uh, and then the next chapter is on the Great Commission. And um, so in terms of advocacy, that's sort of my wheelhouse in my work with World Relief. I think there's kind of two, you know, potential ways to err as we think about advocacy. One is to say, we need to cast our lot with one political party or the other and affirm everything that they, that party says. And in some ways, it supplants God's word as our authority, is the position of one party or the other. Uh, where we have to look the other way as they, you know, say things that are pretty clearly unbiblical, but we've got to be loyal to the party. And we think that sort of idolatry has actually gotten the American church into a lot of trouble. And it can happen on the left or the right. But the, the, uh, the alternative for some Christians is to say, well, we don't do politics. We don't talk about politics. We don't go near that. Which, <laughs> if that means we don't endorse candidates or parties, I'm fine with that. I think that's probably 
fairly wise. But if it means we're never going to talk about issues of a public nature that governmental policies impact and bring biblical wisdom to those conversations, we are effectively outsourcing discipleship on a huge a huge part of our lives to, you know, extra biblical sources. And I mean, I would say that's what I've observed with looking at issues of immigration. I probably shared the stat with your listeners before that only 12% of evangelical Christians say they think about issues of immigration primarily from the perspective of the Bible, by their own admission in LifeWay Research's surveys. I mean, you'd expect people to know to kind of lie on that question. The Bible is probably the right answer. But um, by their own admission, that's not an issue we think of as a biblical issue, not because the Bible doesn't say anything on it, but because we've not often been, been very effectively discipled. So that's really our call is to say, how do we subject our thinking about political issues to God's word, and yet bring God's word fully into those conversations. And then the second question is on the Great Commission. Um, my, colleague, my friend Daniel Yang wrote this chapter for the most part, and he really led off his, with his time as a missionary in Canada, church planting, where he was confronted very early on by a question from someone in the community where he was planting this church who said, you know, are you bringing up that American religion up here? And Daniel said that really struck him because, of course, that's not his goal to bring American religion. It's to bring the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's to bring Jesus. But it helped him sort of reset and ask, how much of what I'm bringing with me is mm-hmm. actually beyond the gospel, is a cultural value? And there's, I mean, American Missions has a mixed history, some beautiful work, and we've, sure. we document some of that. But we've certainly also brought some cultural values with us that weren't part of the gospel, that weren't always helpful either, and were actually yeah. harmful in some societies. And to be able to soberly assess that, I think, is really important, even as we continue to, we're affirming the importance of the Great Commission, the centrality of the Great Commission, but it is making disciples of all nations, not making little Americas all over the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Matthew, thank you, as always. um, Such excellent input. The book is inalienable, um, and it is available today. You can find Matthew at World Relief. Um, You can also find him at the Evangelical Immigration Table. When you are considering the other, um, how are you doing that? From what view? Are we viewing others from a worldly perspective or are we viewing others as potential brothers and sisters with whom we're going to spend all eternity and which actually matters most to us? Um, It's an immigration conversation. It's also a great commission conversation and it's commission uh, and it's a conversation we got to keep having over and over and over again. Let's get the word of God back to its rightful place in our lives that the church could be restored to her rightful place in the culture. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.